Hi and welcome to Magic Numbers. This is episode number 52, Dominaria Unwanted. And today I'm going to look into the draft data of uh, DMU and look at wheeling uh, to some extent, look at signals to some extent. But main focus of the episode will be those three new draft heuristics that I will going to, I'm going to formalize um, based on the data from this format and from previous formats, because I guess Heuristics are not format-specific. Heuristics are across-format ideas um, in draft, and I think that you know uh, we should start drawing them based on data as well as uh, um, on experience. But before we do that, um, a quick word about my sponsor, and that's MTGAZone.com. Uh, they're doing a lot of really good uh, content, um, also unlimited. I'm going to write an article about this episode, um, uh, basically highlighting those three heuristics uh, as well. Uh, they do have articles from uh, J2S Josh. I think that recently there was a video from all the members of the Draft Lab um, uh, group talking about the format, and I still didn't see it, but. I can guarantee you blindly that it's uh, going to be interesting. They have some of the more, most exciting limited grinders uh, on the scene. So um, uh, go there and watch it, uh, give some clicks, uh, share some love because the more you click on the website, the more the more people uh, like me and J2S Josh are going to be sponsored by that and uh, we can create more content for you. So uh, please do that. Um, right, and as always, before we focus on the strict data, I'm having my preamble, and this week's preamble is 100% based on the episode. We have 17 lands for something like two and a half, three years right now. We got a ton of data from that, and we understand magic slightly better through that data. But so far, I never saw anyone creating a formalized heuristic based on that. We have our heuristics in magic, and they are very useful. We know that they are not 100% proof, but very few effort has been done to use data to try to create those heuristics. And I think that is a mistake. Uh, I think that we should formalize uh, across uh, format data into those heuristics. And, and, and this is the uh, path that will be quite beneficial for both the data and uh, magic itself. I think that, and you know, I'm not going to chuck the first stone. I'm guilty as hell in that. We focus way too much on looking at current format. Current format is king, and there's a good reason for that, because uh, the current format is the format that everyone is playing and we want to look at it, and analyzing other formats while this format is um, on top is not going to give you many clicks. But in my defense, on occasions, I do cross-format comparisons, and I think that they are very important, because only by looking at cross-format comparison, you can come up with draft heuristics that are based on data. And today I'm going to... Uh, look in at some of the things that I found in other formats and I find them format after format after format and I also found them here and I finally decided look it's enough to um, ignore those uh, findings I am going to formalize them as a heuristic I am going to put them out there I'm going to write an article about it because I think um, this is the reason why we run data not to solve Dominaria United not to um, uh, get this um, extra percentage point of win rate in uh, the current format, but to make you better draft players, to make you understand the format better. At least that's how it works in my head. And uh, that's why I decided, okay, let's uh, put it as a formalized heuristic. There is enough data from other formats. I talked about it a couple of times before, uh, time to put it um, in, in an official form. So. Uh, the main clue of today's episode is going to be uh, those three heuristics. It's not going to be a whole lot of data about them, but I think it's a very telling um, data and it will help you to understand human mentality on what happens during the draft and, and, and how, people, uh, how people draft in a consistent way um, and how you can abuse it in a consistent way. And the fun part is that if I formalize those heuristics and they go out, uh, they might actually change the premise of themselves. Uh, again, the self-correcting uh, aspect of the draft um, is always there and always 
lurking to uh, try to ruin uh, our efforts in solving the format. That's the beautiful part of draft. If you solve it, more people will do what you think is the solution and then the solution becomes invalid, which means that the format can't really be always solved. Um, but enough about the preamble. Let's start looking at the uh, data uh, of the drafts in DMU. And I lost my, that's my presentation. There it is. Okay, good. So let's start with the data summary. Every piece of data or most pieces of data I'm using are coming from 17lens.com. Shout out to them as always. Um, this is the most amazing tool and uh, especially for people like me who are almost exclusively basing their stuff on 17lens data, but every other content creator is using 17lens data to some extent. And I would highly recommend you as a player, if you want to improve, also use it um, uh, as much as you can, even if only to share some of the game replays with your friends to ask for a second opinion about some uh, plays. Um, it's based on Premier Draft, and I looked at around 15,000 drafts. Um, in this episode, I looked almost exclusively at the data from draft portion. So looking at first picks, looking at when things wheel, um, looking at percentage of uh, times you play a card if you picked it um, as a first pick and stuff like that. Um, I do look at uh, some of the card win rates just to use them in the context of the draft. Um, and I use uh, look at ALSA also in the context of the draft in some occasions. But most of the data comes from the draft portion. So this is the thing that I put on Twitter yesterday as a spoiler for the episode. And this graph shows you that Dominaria United is a different format, not only based on the colors we play and how many of the colors are being played. This thing I showed in my previous seminar, uh, Dominaria United is really an outlier from any other format in the re recent couple of years in terms of being able to play two color decks, three color decks, four color decks, five color decks. Everything is almost possible uh, with this format, except for mono decks maybe. Um, and at the level that is um, very different from anything else. So like, for example, there is twice as many four and more color decks in Dominaria as there used to be in any other format in the last two years. Um, there's almost as many three color decks as in Streets of Nicapena, which was a dedicated three color format. And there is definitely the least amount of straight two color decks from any kind of uh, recent format which still doesn't mean that straight to color decks are not viable. They are, but they just happen uh, less. Mm, but it's not only that. Um, so over the last four months, quite consistently, people played their first pick at around 80% rate. Uh, one exception was Streets of New Capena, a three color format where basically you increase the chance of playing your first pick by playing more colors. So um, it, was, uh, it was quite possible. Because of that, when I did this analysis, I honestly expected that DMU will have a higher percentage of playing your first pick. Because so many decks are domain decks. You first pick a powerful card, you can play it almost in every deck. Wrong. I was expecting this to be somewhere at 84, maybe 85% uh, rate. It's a whole 9, 8 percentage points lower than that. Um, only 76 0.8% of the time uh, people played their uh, first pick in DMU. That is significantly lower than any other format. Um, and this is data taken exactly in the same way um, from all the formats. I had to redo this analysis um, to keep consistency. I took the same amount of drafts um, from the same uh, period in the history of the format, and I came with those uh, numbers. So that's, uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's quite strange for me, at, at least. And um, J2S Josh is saying that uh, uh, he wonders how many of those are people who first picked Wing Metal Chaplain and didn't get the rest of the cards. Honestly, I find it very unlikely not to get the rest of the cards, but you're right. Um, Wing Metal Chaplain is one of those cards that people first picked and, uh, and didn't play in their deck. Uh, one of the most frequent cards to do to, that that this happened with. So um, uh, possibly some of those are people that missed on the whiffed on the wall deck, but not all. I still, I, I, I literally have a problem uh, imagining how you can uh, not get on the wall deck if you first pick the chaplain. You have 40x picks um, to focus on that. 
you basically reevaluate all your pick orders so you're drafting a different draft than everyone else on the table i mean i just finished my draft when i did it and it was so easy just pick every wall you see aggressively and um, follow up with interaction and uh, recursion but all right uh, this was a strange thing to me and um both because it's lower than anything else and because I expected it to be higher than anything else, which is slightly weird. Um, and I think that this is a testament to the uh, specifics of this format where it's not necessarily the color of the cards that's determining um, if you play it or not, but it's the function of the card. And some cards in the colors that you're playing are just so not fitting into the uh, plan of the deck that you're built that you can't play them. And, um, and, um, and I think that 17 lands data users and some amount understand that and then um, therefore they very often pivot off from their uh, first pick if they can't um if they can't play their uh, first pick card because it doesn't fit to the plan okay so which cards do people most frequently play when they first pick them and um this is basically a collection of mythics and rares uh, in most of them, but there are a couple of um, couple of uncommons here as well uh, hiding. But um, Sphinx of the Clear Skies, people managed to squeeze it into the deck 96.7% of the time when they first picked it. Um, we have also Jaya Fire Negotiator, Sarah Paragon, Shieldred, uh, Defiler of Vigor, Shivan Devastator, Elder Dragon War, all these cards um, uh, that look amazing. Um, uh, well, they have also amazing stats. Maybe with the with the exclusion of uh, Defiler of Vigor, which actually has not such an impressive win rate um, uh, for the priority that people pick it with. Um, but then we have Leyline Binding, I think card that um, is going to work very well in domain decks, but also will work sort of in any white deck. So people pick it and play it in many decks. Um, and then we have two uncommons: Harlan Battle Him and uh, Frostfist Strider. I have no idea why these cards are so particularly more played uh, than anything else that people pick, but uh, it's there. Uh, we have Ajani that people tend to play. Who knows if that has something to do with the bounties that um, Josh was putting on. <coughs> Another uncommon in uh, Prayer of Binding, um, and then Danita Benalia's Hope and Silverback Elder. Silverback Elder is understandable because it requires a lot of green when you first pick it. You can build around it. You can put more green in your deck and hopefully be able to play it. Uh, but generally, uh, most cards that you play most frequently when they are first picked are bombs, solid bombs, because it's worth to stick to your bomb. Um, and this, this I have shown in other formats that basically uh, this even increases with um, uh, with higher win rate players in terms of um, higher win rate players will stick to their bombs more aggressively, uh, and they will. Uh, abandon their first pick if it's a low power card much more easily than um, uh, than the uh, lower win rate players. Unfortunately, here I couldn't uh, compare the win rates because the data from win rates was very inconsistent across um, the draft, so I didn't have enough of it to, to make a proper comparison. Right, so which cards people first pick but then don't play? And um, uh, here we have a temporary lockdown that is um, a white rare, probably people picking it up for constructed for some reason and then not playing it because the card is just not good. And we have a bunch of those, um, I think, testament to rare drafting. I'm still amazed that 48% of the people play temporary lockdown uh, after they first picked. And Rivas of the Cloth, Re 3 Manus, uh, Red Black, not the card I would want to play because I wouldn't want to play Red Black, basically, uh, but people pick it and play it. Shadow Rite Priest, the Cleric Lord, Phasing of Zalfir, and other rares, rare blue wrath that probably is a wrath for very specific decks. Uh, Leaf Crown Visionary, uh, Elf Lord, Karn Living Legacy, Planeswalker. Uh, all these cards just um, are not really something I would want to play at all in my decks. Stand Paranoid Partisan, it's something I would be considering. Yes, Josh, I was also quite baffled that so many people played Phasing of Zalfir. But I guess we would see that um, um, these cards are being played by people who think, okay, rare is a rare, therefore I should play it um, and not think about uh, its, 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 its place in, the, in, in, in their deck. 
Um, I'm, I think that we, we're going to see big differences between the ability level in terms of um, how those cards are played. I think first card that is a real build around that doesn't always come together is Joda the Unifier. It's placed around uh, five out of eight times uh, by the 17 lens users. <clears throat> Here we also have a bunch of um, uh, multicolor uh, uncommons uh, in Garna, Tori Davenant, and uh, Lagomos. These are also particularly the ones that require a two-color focus deck rather than the main deck. Therefore, they will not always come together because if you first pick it and you don't get to play this uh, black-red aggro deck or the white-red aggro deck, they're just going to sit in your sideboard. Wing Mantle Chaplain, 66% only uh, uh, of play rate when uh, it's first picked. And I'm baffled by that. I, I think that you can make a wall deck tick uh, much easier than that. So. Uh, it might be that there is, um, because the data comes from across the playing period, it might be that there is just uh, slightly more decks from the beginning of the format. But on the other hand, people that first picked Wing Mental Chaplain knew that Wing Mental Chaplain is good, so I don't find an excuse not to draft a, wing or a wall deck at that stage. And then you have another Rough Weatherlight Stalwart, another of those um, more focused um, two-color cards. Uh, Tail Swipe. I don't know. I probably would include it in most of my decks if I first picked it. Uh, Springbok. Yeah, I think that it's possible. And I actually should have done maybe the statistic, how many walls do you see on average per draft? But I don't think that it will happen that frequently. I think with four or five walls, you can play that easily. And maybe people are more, a bit more conservative and they thought they need seven, eight. Um, and Baird are, are given Recruiter another of those um, more narrow two-color cards. So one thing that's there is that there's rare drafted cards um, and um, two-color cards that come in those more narrowly focused um, um, archetypes, especially in the Mardu color, so the white-red and, uh, and black-red. Um, because, of course, the domain ones will be played more widely because domain decks can be almost anything if you and and lots of things fit into those. Okay, so let's start with it. This was a, like a warm up on a data, and let's start with the new heuristics that I want to introduce. And first one, first one is mana fixing goes later in pack one than in pack two and three, and I've seen that in all kinds of formats already, and it's a pretty strong effect as well. So think about it. This means that human psychology in draft works like this. People focus first on playables, then on fixing. And obviously, this means that earlier the fixing is going later, and it's easier to get. And later, as people need it, it um, uh, it's not available anymore. Which makes me think, as a cunning drafter, you should do probably the opposite to some extent. You should maybe get a couple of cards that are uh, a decent starting point uh, for a deck. Um, then make sure that you have the fixing. And then when you have a fixing, you will be rewarded because other people at that time will be prioritizing fixing. So even if they are the same color as you, they will pick the fixing later because they need it. Otherwise, they won't be able to win. Um, and you will be rewarded by getting those cards later. And just to look at the data, this is the percentage chance of wheeling a dual land in pack one pack two and pack three. As you can see, Molten Tributary, 50% chance of wheeling it uh, if you opened it in pack one uh, as a pick one. It drops to 40% in pack two and only 34% um, uh, in pack three. So the difference of 16 percentage points between uh, between when it's opened and when it's uh, in pack three, uh, when it's opened in pack one and, and, and in pack three. And as you can see, like, Almost across the board, there is a drop of, uh, you know, roughly 15 percentage points between pack one and pack three, which is a big, big, big difference. So uh, uh, when you look at the ALSA numbers of the lands, they don't reflect the disproportion between how often those cards wheel in pack one and pack two and three. And in some cases, there is a bigger difference between pack two and pack three. In some cases, like um, geothermal bog or um, uh, or wooded ridgeline, you don't see that much of a difference between pack two and pack three. But 
there is always a big difference between pack one and pack three and and and, and sizable difference between pack one and pack two so pack one is when you want to at least build your basic fixing background get you know two three lands if you are playing in a format that um, has those two, three lands. I'm going to look at lands and the dual lands in specific later during the seminar, but I think that ability to draft lands and being able to prioritize them is absolutely essential. And I think that you would get further in drafts if you make responsible picks on lands earlier and not be so focused on playables because it's much easier to get a deck that does not have enough fixing than to um, than to not get enough playables. Uh, Springbok is asking, are the corresponding numbers for the rare land similar or different? We're going to see some of it, not much of it, but uh, general trend is the same. Obviously, numbers are different because they wheel much rarely, much more rarely because they are rares and uh, arena economy is promoting people to pick rares um, uh, over anything else because... That's basically free wildcards for constructed players. Okay, um, so that is the heuristic one. You can, I think, quite clearly see that um, uh, the trend is there. Now, I'm saying heuristic because I've seen the same since Kalheim, really. All the land fixing was always going late in pack one and then disappeared in pack two and three. And uh, that trend is pretty consistent. I think it relates how to how human psychology works. And um, if you can, by knowing, challenge your um, human weakness and, um, and and try to pick those lands earlier in pack one, I think you're going to be rewarded. I think, especially in Streets of New Capena, I played a lot of three-color decks that were hardcore three-color with even mana bases. And I did it because I prioritized fixing in pack one and I was ending up with uh, like eight, eight, seven mana bases, which are pretty good, or nine, eight, seven uh, mana bases because of the uh, uh, tri-lands tri and, and then dual-lands. Mm. Springbok, I'm sorry, because her, her migration um, is, 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 is a sweet card to build around. So, uh, yeah, um, it's a shame that you didn't see the duels. We're going to look at um, the frequency of you seeing duels uh, at the end of the presentation, so I will leave that discussion for that, maybe. Um, right, the second heuristic is signpost go early in pack one and later in pack two and three. Um, and this is again, something I observed in multiple formats before. Um, the signposts and commons um, are almost in every set. Because of that, they are the sort of proxy for multicolor cards. I'm pretty sure that this heuristic is true for other types of multicolor cards, but uh, because signposts are everywhere, it's easier to apply it to them. But what it means is that people want to find their identity early and later, those cards don't have an appeal, even in the format as multicolor centric as this one, you will be able to wield those um, uh, signposts and commons in pack uh, two and three. Um, and these are the, so I divided those graphs into two. Um, one, the first one is with the uh, CD uncommons, which means that they have one mana of one color and the other of the other color and the uh, second graph that we'll see after that is the CDD uh, uncommons where you have one mana of one color and two mana of the other color. So they are more mana intensive and this more difficult to uh, to cast. Um, but you can see there, there are some differences like for example, uh, Elias Ilkor and Zara Ojanin are rarely wheeling uh, in general, but you see they almost never wheel in pack one. Elias Ilkor, 2% of wheeling uh, in pack one. Zaro Janin, 3.6% of wheeling in uh, pack one. And then in the case of Elias Ilkor, it goes up to almost 9% in pack three. And in case of Zaro Janin, to almost 7% wheel rate in uh, pack three. And some of them um, are wheeling more frequently. We see uh, Baird, for example, seven, eight, almost 8% 8 wheeling rate uh, in pack one. goes up to... 18, 17, uh, 16, 16 to 18 in packs two and three. Uh, Balmore, 10% wheel rate in um, pack one, up to 21 to 25 in pack two and three. Um, yes, um, one specific um, exception is Vohar, Vodalian Desecrator, the Demir uh, signpost uncommon, which 
wheels 25% already in pack one. It still goes up to around 32, 33% in, um, um, in uh, pack two and three. This is a very good card that goes way too late and should be picked up. And, and uh, Springbook is right that uh, Corticals and some other content creators were pointing out this fact that uh, this card, and there is another, there is another card that does similar things. We will see it on the next graph. graph. But generally you can see that um, those multicolor cards wheels sort of like between 10 percentage points more and, and, and maybe five percentage more depending on the, on the, on the individual card. So uh, it has a lot of variance and I guess that it will sort of depend on um, how easily splashable and how easily and how splash-like uh, are the decks that the card is usually played in. Like for example, uh, Balmor and Baird uh, are played in the color combinations when you don't splash a lot, so um, so you uh, have those larger differences. Um, while Nail, Avisa, Aeronaut, by nature, will be in decks that splash a lot, so uh, um, people will pick it up uh, even in uh, pack two and three because if they are interested in it, they can play it even if it's on their first color. So um, um, that's the that's the difference between individual cards. Maybe something I should more explain, it, um, uh, should more uh, explore more in the future. Um, I don't know which one of those is more likely to be splashed, to be fair. Um, so hard for me to say. I would guess that it's board took Bone Rattle because it costs six mana. And for that reason, it's the easiest card to splash. If you're playing green, blue, you can get some black sources and um, board took will be just fine. Okay, here are the more difficult um, ones to cast, the uh, CDD uncommons, and we see the same trend really. I mean, they go much earlier in uh, pack one and they go much later in pack three and two, because of course people already selected their colors, it's very hard to splash them. Like, you won't be able to play Queen Alenal of Ruda, Ruadak um, uh, easily if you're not already in a green-white uh, aggressive deck. And here we see another uh, example, Urk Spawn of Turk, which wheels a lot already in pack one, 32% wheel rate, and um, wheels slightly more in packs two and three, so like 38, 34% uh, uh, wheel rate. Uh, Urk Spawn of Turk is... Um, Another excellent card that is slightly underappreciated. I absolutely love Urg. Uh, also, the backstory of Urg is, is, is lovely. Um, it comes from flavor text of, uh, of one of the cards from Odyssey. Um, it's, I think that uh, Mark Rosewater described where Urg comes from uh, in one of the drives to work. I would recommend listening to it. Um, but uh, yeah, this card definitely deserves to be picked higher than, than that shouldn't wheel. Um, uh, it can do some uh, phenomenal things. Um, but apart from the, that, the other ones, um, some of them are really highly picked in the early game. Uh, Aaron, um, Benalia's Ruin, and Tura Kenderut uh, especially. These cards are not that particularly great, but um, they just do what arena people love to do, so they are picked quite highly. So um, this is probably uh, not due to 17 lands user that they are picked so highly. Um, but after pack one, their prioritization drops off. And here again, I think we can see this sort of like slight, um, um, slight uh, smaller effect when it comes to cards that are easy to splash, uh, especially Tatiova, because this is the most likely to be in domain decks. You, you don't see that big an effect, but most of them uh, have around 10 percentage points different between, uh, between pack one and pack three. So uh, quite a lot. Springbok Aaron goes really highly for some reason. I think that the reason is that the card looks appealing. It just doesn't work appealing. That's the, that's the that's the problem with it. Oh. Okay. Um, so these are the two heuristics that are sort of exclusive towards each other. Uh, first one, fixing is being picked in pack two and three much higher, much more highly than in pack one, and multicolor cards as um, depicted by the uh, signposts and commons, go much higher, much later in packs two and three than in pack one. So if you're a smart drafter, you are picking fixing first and um, 
you are going to be rewarded by those multicolor cards if your fixing is right, especially in those formats that require you to play five colors. Like, honestly, I think that if you want to play a domain deck, you are better off picking up all the fixing in pack one, because if you pick all the fixing early, you're also, in some extent, uh, cutting off people from being in domain, which means that in pack two and three, especially, they will be absolutely not interested in domain cards. Um, and or they, they will be having problem with picking their fixing and having to abandon their path. So you're very well advised to pick that um, fixing early and treat it as high um, uh, high grade cards uh, when you see those lands, because that's the moment when you can actually get a lot of them. And once you get a lot of them, you don't care about that. You're going to be rewarded by all those multicolor cards going later and domain payoffs going later because people just don't have enough fixing because you hoarded it uh, early enough. So. Um, um, uh, um, that's what comes out of the data that can be abused and uh, hopefully um, you will find your own ways to do that. Now, let's talk a bit about wheeling for the break now uh, from heuristics. So these are the cards with win rate over 56%, game and hand win rate um, over 56% that wheel frequently, the most frequently. Uh, and we have um, Shield Wall Sentinel that's, that wheels around 80% of the time. And is one of the reasons why I think it's very difficult not to get there in terms of the Chaplain deck, because you always get a Shield Wall Sentinel, maybe two, uh, depending on how many were open in the uh, pod, you should be able to get them if you prioritize them, because you know you have a Chaplain already. Um, then we have Gaia's Might and Furious Bellow and Colossal Growth. All three cards have um, pretty decent win rate. All three cards are combat tricks. Um, and all three cards wheel over 70% of the time. Uh, and we're going to get there later. Shadow Prophecy, 70% of the time it wheels. Um, this card, I didn't think is going to be that good, but it turns out that it's sort of almost like dig through time. Uh, three mana, look at five cards, pick two of them. Uh, works much better than just uh, three mana draw two because selection is so important in it. Um, but still people people don't uh, want to play multiple copies of it because of the two life loss, so you will always be able to get that card. It will wheel quite a lot. Um, timely Interference, another combat trick um, that wheels quite a lot and essential for tempo decks and, and uh, Tolarian Terror decks that, that need a lot of uh, instant sorceries in the graveyard. Crystal Grotto, another big surprise for me in the format, um, a card that I... Actually, I am playing uh, two copies in my uh, current wall deck because I don't care about domain. I want my mana fixed. I have four colors in it because I also have like Urborg um, Repossessions. Um, uh, I need my green kicker for those. And I have uh, Esper Wall Chassis in there with quite a lot of uh, mana intensive uh, costs. And I thought, yeah, Crystal Grotto is better in that um, uh, kind of deck because. Um, Sometimes I really don't care that I pay the one mana extra. And most of the time I'm going to get my mana anyway because I do have also a bunch of dual lands, but Crystal Grotto is my sort of reserve option in case I didn't go get there. Because worst case scenario for me is I, I am holding spells that I cannot cast in my hand. Uh, Goblin Picker, that's an, um, a card that wheels, again, for I don't know what reason. It's, it's an amazing card. Um, it's got a phenomenal... Uh, uh, well, not phenomenal. it's got really solid win rate for a two drop, and it plays a very interesting role in um, in aggressive uh, decks because it allows you to be there on the board early and later in the game uh, allows you to also not um, flood completely because you can always uh, ramage your your lands. Blackboard drawbridge, it, it should wheel more probably. I think this card is terrible outside of the uh, Chaplain deck and even in the Chaplain deck. I'd rather have other walls, but um, of course you will pick any wall in that uh, situation. Um, Eerie Soul Tender, another card that was surprising me. I think that the 3-1 is actually in not a bad body in this uh, format because there is not much of the one, one, one toughness creature hate that is any played in any way. So the 3-1 is almost the same as the 3-2 and it does so many things and it fits in so many plans that the card is good and it wheels frequently so you can, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, with, without anything. Yeah, yeah so Springbook, yes. Irisult um, under definitely blocks well. And uh, Mercurio, that's a good one. I've been noticing people first picking uh, Urborg Repossession early because there is a belief you can't play the grindy domain deck without access to it. It's not easy, but I, I think you can play it. It depends on how you build your deck. Um, and 
people play three, four copies of repossessions too. I'm going to be super keen on seeing the data on um, on the game. I still there's it's still not available on 17 lands, unfortunately. Uh, but once it gets there, I'm going to look at the copy numbers of those kind of cards and, and then try to figure out um, what's going on in there. So uh, yeah, that's going to be interesting. And we have another couple of co combat tricks there: shore up and heroic charge. Um, then we have a bunch of draw cards because let's call them their draw cards: impulse, Phyrexian, espionage. Uh, that's the three mana draw two, and they can kick it to discard two. And Urberg Repossession, draw two cards, but from your graveyard. And uh, if you have that, then you have ways of putting cards in your graveyard, most likely. Um, also, um, wheeling over uh, around 60% of the time. Okay, let's hide that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is the heuristic number three that I came up with. Combat tricks wheel more frequently than other types of cards, making decks based on combat tricks easier to soft force. And this is something I've seen again, format after format, because people learn that you should have one, maybe two combat tricks in your deck. They tend to stick to that um, rule. And, um, and because they stick to that rule, you open each common on average 2.4 times uh, in a pod which means that if they open two or three Colossal Growth, maybe a person picks one of them and then they say, okay, that's enough of the uh, combat tricks for me, um, which means that uh, if you are particularly interested in getting those Colossal Growth and Gaia's Might, you'll get you know, two of them easily. Uh, and that's, that, that's even not accounting for pods where no one is interested in them and they just wheel freely as last picks. This means that if you can figure out a deck that uses combat tricks very efficiently, you can, you can get them, which means that this strategy will be open more frequently than um, other strategies because naturally people will wheel uh, the main card that you're interested in. So you can prioritize your important creatures and let, them, um, uh, let your combat tricks wheel. And if they don't wheel, then you know that there's competition for the deck on the, in the pod and, and you can decide based on that. Uh, I don't think I can afford to uh, be one of the two drafters that want to draft this strategy at my pod. I, I'd rather pass um, uh, rather than uh, rather than trying to uh, force a particular strategy based on combat tricks. But knowing that combat tricks are likely to wheel is an important um, is an important thing to uh, know in, in in draft strategy in general. Uh, um, okay, so let's look at. Which cards wheel late in the draft? And we talked about my heuristic that it's the two-color um, signposts and commons. And if we look at the list of the cards that the difference um, in wheeling frequency between pack one and pick three is the biggest, which means that it wheels much more frequently in uh, pack three, we see uh, Najal, the Storm Runner, Balmor, Battle Mage, uh, Captain, Rona, Rough Weatherlight Stalwart, Tura Kenerud, um, the Sky Knight, Lagomos, Aaron, Garna, Baird, Tori Davenant, Rulikmons, like a bunch of those um, uh, multicolor legends. Actually, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of them. So, eleven of the uh, 15 cards that I have on that uh, list of the cards that wheel more likely to, more likely to wheel in pack, uh, in pack three. Are um, um, are multicolor legends, uh, which is like a strong um, um, signal. But not all of those cards are multicolor legends, and therefore I made another graph when I just removed those uh, multicolor legends at Uncommon because I already showed you the numbers behind them. And then we have uh, cards like Wing Mental Chaplain is the card that is more likely to wheel in um, pack three. Um, and the fact that it wheels in pack three is not so important. The fact that it goes later in pack three is quite important because that means that um, you can be ready for it. Uh, very often with cards like um, Shieldmate, they will go naturally late. And sometimes you will have them in a pack that doesn't have anything that interesting. And when you have already a deck that has some blue, maybe some black, uh, maybe some black green, you might want to speculate on those uh, shield mates because there is a chance that in uh, pack three, you're just going to have a late wing mental chaplain because no one is interested in them because no one has facilities to accommodate them in pack three and they know that they won't make it on walls. 
if you sacrifice a couple of mediocre picks of cars that are fringe playable and uh, put yourself in a position to pick that wing mental chaplain later, you might have a really strong deck all of a sudden uh, based on um, based on what you uh, what you sort of speculatively drafted in the first uh, couple of picks. Uh, other country, uh, um, other countries, oh, other other cards that um, are uh, wheeling late in the draft. Choking miasma. I don't have a very good explanation why this one is um, not. No one is interested in late in the draft, except for the fact that it's a sort of multicolor card. Sprouting Goblin, exactly the same. Griffin Protector, I think that uh, this one just doesn't fit into any other uh, any white deck and maybe needs a more specific uh, house. And therefore it will slightly more because slightly fewer people will be in that house in, the, in, 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 that, in that kind of uh, plan uh, later. It's the same with Skeldon Strike Team, that's also a multicolor card on top of everything. Uh, Talas Lookout, that's a different uh, situation. It is not a multicolor card because of the two blue in the casting cost. So um, maybe if someone is not like on a heavier uh, side of playing blue, no one on the pod is interested in drafting it um, uh, late. Again, joint exploration, Elvish Hydromancer, multicolor card, sort of. Battlewing Mystic, sort of multicolor card again. Uh, Combat Researcher thing needs a dedicated deck. And um, I don't even know if that dedicated deck is a deck. Um, that I would like to be playing myself. Mm, then you have another two kicker cards with multi that are sort of multicolor. Um, Iconoclast, another sort of multicolor um, card, but here I don't see a good reason not to pick it if you play anything green. I mean, a two mana three two with trample still looks like a decent play, but it's good to know that um, if you have your Gaia Smite deck, maybe you can see some later Iconoclasts uh, in pack three. And we have also Black Pie, which is the uh, two mana three three wall in black, and Astor Bearer of Blades, another multicolor card. So we have a bunch of um, build arounds and multicolor cards. Um, build arounds like Wingmantel Chaplain, Griffin Protector, and sort of Kel Keldon Strike Team as a sort of a uh, build around. And um, multicolor cards like Sprouting Goblin, especially because this one really wants to be kicked. If not, uh, if not, then it's not such a great card. Elvish Hydromancer, I think. Um, Juniper Order Root Weaver is a sort of a multicolor card. Battlewing Mystic, you really want to kick this one um, if you can. An Iconoclast, you definitely would prefer to um, uh, wheel. Blightpile is another sort of build around the card. But these are the cards that we'll be wheeling later in the draft that are not um, uh, signed postcards. Other multicolor cards and build arounds because you can't build a build around in pack three unless you're ready for it. And in case of Wing Metal Chaplain, it's worth to be ready for it. Um, now, cards that wheel early in the draft, and here, like the first, the first eleven are lands. It does include Crystal Grotto, that also is picked much more highly in um, in pack three, and much less in pick one. So here we have the opposite card. So basically, Idyllic Beachfront is uh, picked twenty percentage points higher um, in pack one than in pick th uh, pack three. But we already talked about those lands, so I made another graph where um, I skip lands and just leave the cards that are not lands, or at least not the lands that we've been talking about. Uh, here we start with Chaotic Transformation, no idea why. Um, then we have uh, Gaia's Might, uh, Furious Bellow, uh, so two combat tricks, Shore Up, another combat trick, um, Yavimaya Sojourner, um, and this is a weird one because it's sort of like a reward for being in um, in domain, but I guess people don't want to pick it early. Um, uh, uh, they really want to know that they can play domain before they start picking it, um, and um, uh, because of that, you can get your sojourners early and then um, uh, and then try to build around them. The problem is that then you don't have access to many lands because lands go uh, later because uh, after that. Uh, another combat trick, Colossal Growth, um, uh, goes uh, slightly, uh, has is prioritized a bit higher uh, later. Carplus and Forest and Shield will Sentinel. Um, it's also easier to get them in pack one because maybe in pack two there is more potential uh, Wing Metal Chaplain players in the pod. Uh, Fleetman, yeah, that might be the reason that transformation goes late. Uh, people know what they are in. They are, they know they make it on playables. They will just pick a rare for rare drafting. That's a very feasible explanation. Um, Meteorite, 
That's the desperation from people that look for fixing. Salvage mana worker, same. Uh, desperate fixing. Uh, we also have Yami, we have Maya Coast, Coast uh, in there as another of the dual uh, pain lands. Um, and we also have uh, Captain Skull. So basically, I guess people are desperate to get their Captain Skull late in the game because they want to play their go-white strategy and they're not so interested in the card early. I'm not interested in Captain Skulls that much myself. Uh, but these are, these are in short, um, cards that will wheel early, but later are slightly less available. Those differences are much smaller than in cards that, uh, that go late at pack three. Um, if you look at it, uh, because here we had, here we had roughly six, seven percentage points difference, uh, between pack one and pick pack three. And here we have like 3.5. So these are small differences. I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. Okay, Captain's Call with Raph might be okay. Now, next um, stat is, I looked at the cards that um, were frequently pack one, picked one, pick one, picked and as a pack one, pick one. And then I looked at their win rates uh, when they were played or when they were abandoned as that pick, uh, pack one, pick one. And here are the cards that uh, were most favorable to abandon playing them. Uh, Aaron, uh, Valiant Veteran, it seems like these are the two build rounds that don't come together very easily. And people actually were better off abandoning them as their pack one, pick one, um, than playing them. Uh, Rata Drabik of Urborg, I think people try to play around that card and it doesn't work very well. You have actually a higher win rate in the decks that just decided not to play it. Um, same with uh, Ajani and Braids. Um, you see that uh, Ajani, while played uh, as a pack one, pick one, had only 54% win rate and almost 60% win rate the decks that first picked Ajani but then didn't play it. Um, we have a couple of defilers here, uh, uh, the white one and the blue one. Uh, they also drop Prayer of Binding, which is weird, but um, okay, I guess... Uh, People try to stick to white too much when uh, when that happened. And Silverback Elder, I guess the people don't always come together on it, and sometimes you have to abandon it and will do better if, um, if, if you do. Now, this data has to be looked at with care because this might be also a result of people that have better win rates are more likely to abandon their first pick in this format. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. But um, uh, but still, even if that's the case, there are cards that have a, a completely opposite um, uh, result pattern. So uh, it still says something about the cards that are on this list, um, um, that abandoning them as a first pick yields better results than uh, keeping them. And also keep in mind that um, it's only 15,000 drafts. So we, you know, like uh, things like, Ratadrabic were not first picked that often. I tried to pick the uh, sample size of over you know, 100 drafts, uh, but um, that still is not massive. So uh, there might be some variance in there because of smaller sample sizes. Um, now the cards that were much better by sticking to them uh, uh, than when it comes to abandoning. Uh, and we have Shieldred, Aquarium uh, Beast Color, Talus Lookout as a first pick gives pretty decent results, but okay. Uh, Knights of Dawn's Light, um, uh, you have 10 percentage points higher win rate when you play it uh, uh, after you first picked it and uh, than, than if you abandoned it. Uh, Electrostatic Infantry, same. And this is a card that has a really high win rate when you uh, first picked it and played it because I think you get a like, relatively large bonus from um, from being able to spending the whole draft to try to build around it. And we have the same with Drag to the Bottom, uh, another card that um, um, that you can focus to build around if you first picked it and um, uh, and you're ready to play it uh, properly in your deck. Same, same I think, goes with the Queer and Beast color uh, that I mentioned earlier. I think that those cards, they are not build arounds per se because they are powerful cards in their own right, but they require some extra um, care in terms of draft. And I think picking them early gives you much more freedom on uh, what you will put in those decks that are interested in playing those cards. Okay. Um, so when I looked at this electrostatic infantry, I actually started wondering which cards have the highest win rate when you first pick them? 
because to me that will give you a decent signal on which cards are good as a build around or good if you pick it early and then dedicate your draft to uh, playing those uh, those cards. And I looked at the top 10 of those. I had Electrostatic Infantry, Anointed Peacekeeper, uh, Shivan Devastator, um, Squee, Sheldred, Herd Migration, Fires of Victory, Phyrexian Missionary, Guardian of New Benalia, and Haughty Gene. A bunch of those cards are white, red, aggro cards, like Squee, Anointed Peacekeeper, Shivan Devastator, um, Guardian of Benalia. A couple of them are spells build arounds, like Electrostatic Infantry and Haughty Jin. Um, there is a herd migration, which uh, is a sort of the main build around. Um, so that's basically the package I found in there. That um, uh, if you plan to build a spells deck, you better start doing it early, uh, and then you will be rewarded. Uh, it's usually good when you start building your white red aggro with um, with a bomb already in the in the set. Uh, so that's another thing. Shieldred is just probably Shieldred. Um, you just pick black cards and you should be fine. And I think Phyrexian Missionary is an interesting one there. That um, I think it's a card that uh, if you pick it early, you can focus on building a slightly more grindy version of white deck. And um, if you do that, uh, I think you're going to be in a better spot than if you just pick it later and you play it in your aggro chassis. So I think that that's the difference there. Okay, almost there in terms of um, the seminar. Last thing that I wanted to focus on, or second to last thing that I wanted to focus on is um, looking at the stats regarding dual lands. And um, so first of all, I wanted to look at how many dual lands you will see in a draft. And as you can see, it's a quite a wide spread. So uh, between eight and 30 with an average of somewhere around 18, 19 dual lands you will see during the draft. Um, and then looking at how many duels you will wield in draft on average, and it ranges between zero and, and, and maybe like 10. Uh, but most of the drafts you will see one, two or three uh, of them wheeling. And this is this graph, if you think about it, is a monument to self-correcting nature of draft. Uh, why do I say so? Because look how broad is the range of how many lands you see in the draft. From 8 to 30, it covers like 22 uh, uh, numbers, basically. But how many you wheel is a much narrower thing, which means that the more duels people see, the more people will be attracted in drafting duels because they will see the dual lands. So naturally, it will position themselves that if there is plenty of dual lands opened in the pod, uh, people will uh, pick more of those dual lands and then more people will be in the domain deck because there is more fixing opened in the pod. I think that this is a subtle um, conclusion from this graph, but a, a qu quite a profound one. I think that um, um, showing how drafts self-regulate uh, using this graph is, is a quite an interesting uh, aspect of it. I didn't expect to reach that conclusion before I before I did it. I was expecting that the more lands you open, the more lands will wield, but that's not a simple truth. It is partially true, but not completely, as we will see in a second. Now, it's important to know that uh, you see majority of your dual lands in the first four picks of each pack. So um, uh, pack one, pick one to four, pack two, pick one to four, pack three, pick one to four, you will see 65% uh, of your uh, dual lands in those places. So if you're st struck to get enough lands, you need to, um, um, you need to, uh, oh no, I didn't put my most beautiful graph. I'll have to fix it in a second. Um, um, you really need to focus in those first picks, especially like pack two or something. You, you need to prioritize the lands to get them uh, because majority of the land you will see are in there. Um, but after pick five, and so from pick six to pick 14, you will still see a bunch of uh, dual lands. Like on average, you will see six to eight dual lands in um, in those later picks. So uh, so focus on that. Here you, you see a table of how many dual lands do you see per draft? So uh, only showing the spectrum between four and 17, which is, you know, 
where the majority of the numbers are, and how many dual lens wield uh, in a draft. And you see that there is a certain correlation between the number of lens you've seen and the number of lens you would wield. Uh, now, if you look deeper into this correlation, you will see that this explains roughly 22% of the, of the variance. So the number of the lens you wield depends on the number of lens you see, but it's not like uh, explaining all of it. It only explains a small part of it, um, which means that uh, there will be variants that will probably explain quite a lot and then maybe some other factors that explain um, uh, other things. But, um, but again, as you can see from these, this graph, um, yeah, it seems pretty low, but I mean, I'm pretty sure there will be a lot of variance there uh, on which pod you are in and what people opened in their first picks will have a quite um, a large um, effect. But as I said, you, you see from this graph that people react to the number of lands uh, they see, and the more lands are being opened, um, uh, the more people will pick lands that will result in the fact that uh, not so many of them are wheeling, because uh, if you open many lands, well, people will just pick more of them. Uh, and this has something to do also that if you have so many lands in the packs, maybe there are no other strong cards and people will just pick lands because these are the strongest things that they can pick at this way at a given moment. Um, okay, and the last graph that we have um, in here, uh, uh, Alchemy Horizons, Baldur's Gate, I did the graph that basically shown the relationship between ALSA and the percentage chance of wheeling. But of course, doing it for one format is not enough to make sure to, 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 to make it a universal thing. So I did the same with the, uh, with DMU. I basically put the probability of wheeling based on the data that I had and ALSA of the cards. Um, and I got almost the same, uh, almost the same kind of curve. So I can now be quite convinced that, um, uh, there is a very straightforward relationship between ALSA and the probability of wheeling. So if you get a new format and you want to know what are the odds of a card wheeling, I would recommend you to go to my uh, mtgazone.com article about it. There is a very nice graph there where you can basically read um, what ALSA means, what percentage of wheeling probability, uh, and you can use that. Uh, or you can come back to this or, or the pre one of the previous seminars when I explained that. But I think that the graph that I put on MTGA zone is higher quality, so it's um, um, easier to use because I made it with the thought of people coming back to that article and, and looking through um, wheeling probabilities. But yeah, again, it's nice to make an observation based on one format, but it's always good to confirm it based on the other. Um, and I think that um, there is a slightly broader um, um, range of values in uh, DMU, but I think that that has something to do with those uh, rares that are rares, so people still draft them, but not necessarily outplayable, which means that uh, they will be picked um, on average slightly higher sometimes um, uh, uh, than the ALSA would dictate, because the probability of them being picked sixth or seventh increases rapidly, so their distribution of picks is slightly different than of a normal card. Normal card will have a flat distribution that very rarely it will be picked um, as as third card and then sometimes as fourth and blah 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 and then mostly as a sixth pick but then it slowly declines with the rare the decline will be sharp because if I see an empty pack and there's nothing for my deck I'm picking a rare I'm just just free gems uh, at certain stage and because of the arena economy it's going to uh, impact um, uh, this and of course this will relate between ALSA and the probability of wheeling something. Um, all right, that's it for today. I would like to, again, thank MTGA Zone for helping me with uh, keeping my interest in redoing those seminars. Um, uh, they are very helpful and um, uh, understanding for my uh, atypical content creator situation because uh, obviously I have a full-time job that requires a bunch of uh, intensive uh, time investments. Uh, so uh, thanks for that understanding. As always, thanks to 17 Lands team. I really feel for them because DMU is a tough thing for them to do with server migration. Uh, there have been some technical glitches, so then uh, uh, they need all their uh, thoughts and prayers or whatever well-wishing that you can give them. Uh, obviously, I'll mention Viral Misnomer, the head of 17 Lands, and Ale Ballini is now in charge of a bunch of stuff. So a uh, big shout out to him. 
and also Hululu and Grant Wu, who are um, uh, collaborators uh, of the 17 Lands and responsible for lots of stuff that um, the website has to offer. Um, as always, I will thank Fake Jake Brown, who is helping me to release it as a podcast and helping me with well, bunch of things as an as an advisor, friend, and a mentor. Um, so thanks to them a lot. And um, while I'm on the topic of the podcast, I would also like to thank um, SSKU and Mana Junkie for the music I'm using there. Thanks to Fake Jake Brown again um, uh, as my intro. And with that, I'll see you next week. <laughs>